Hello, my friends. Welcome to a special episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Now, next week, we will resume with our regularly scheduled program where I'll be bringing you conversations with more incredible guests like writer, creator Asa Merritt, death doulas Darnell Lamont Walker and Elua Arthur, actress and author from scratch Tempe Locke, grief therapist and author Claire Bidwell-Smith, and just so many more incredible guests. But today, I wanted to share something I've been reflecting on lately. It's about the losses we experience that rarely get named or honored, not just by others, but even by ourselves. Some are the secondary losses like friendships, financial security, or sense of identity that results from the primary losses we experience. Still others are the more ambiguous losses we face when we or someone we love are experiencing serious illness, catastrophic injuries, degenerative diseases, and more. In a world where we already struggle to accurately acknowledge and properly support the grievers in our lives, these losses often go unseen. And the problem is that to heal, that is to move from this loss being our entire story to being just a part of our story, we first need to recognize the hurt, the grief, so that we can give it the love, attention, and compassion it needs. Now, I have explored some of these secondary and more ambiguous losses on the show over the past five years. I recently recognized, though, that there's this other missing piece, the need for acknowledgement and ritual of the anniversaries of the day that our life changed, even when we're not all better yet. We all have one or more before-after moments in our lives, the day our worldview changed forever. That might be the day someone we loved was in a catastrophic accident, the day we discovered infertility, or of course, the day someone we loved died. As grievers, most of us have cultivated some sort of rituals for acknowledging the anniversary of someone's death. We honor their lives and make space for the journey we've been on since we said goodbye. Sadly, those anniversaries are not often recognized or remembered by the people in our lives who were there for us in the early days. But what struck me last month is the lack of acknowledgement or ritual for those before-after days where we're not in the after yet. How do we honor the time that's passed since our lives shifted when we're still in the middle of that change, when there's still a force in motion and we haven't arrived at the other side? For me, that day happened last month on the one-year anniversary of the day I got my breast cancer diagnosis. One year later, and I'm not all better yet. I'm not on the other side. That realization made me want to mark the day somehow, create my own ritual. What I chose to do was look at a picture of me taken just before the call, just before I received the news, and then talking to her, I mean me, and eventually writing a letter imagining I'm telling her, that version of me a year ago, the places she will go over the next year, what she will experience, 
and the lessons she will learn along the way. In essence, I wanted to hold space for her. I mean me. Now, a note, my dear listeners, this is an experiential episode, unlike others we've done before. So if you're listening while driving in your car or out on a walk, I encourage you to hit pause and come back to it when you're home or in a quiet space. Imagine we're gathering in a beautiful workshop space somewhere together. You're gifting yourself this time, so grab your journal, get comfortable, turn off your ringers and notifications. In essence, bring intention to your attention. Welcome in this opportunity to experience self-compassion and to discover how you will honor your own not-all-better-yet anniversaries, too. Self-compassion is very necessary when we're invited to be a witness to our story. Yet so many of us struggle to connect with it. It's odd, but even those of us who face profound loss often feel more comfortable honoring others' losses while somehow minimizing or dismissing the impact of our own loss in our lives. And collectively, we often make this mistake that compassion is limited somehow and that we can't offer it to ourselves when so many other people are suffering too. But I'm here to tell you that's not true. So to ground us and prepare us to hold space for our own story today, first I will guide us through a meditation on breathing in and out compassion. This is a chance to rediscover a truth that we've been lost sight of somehow, that compassion is limitless, that we are capable and deserving of offering it to ourselves. Once we're all grounded in our capacity to have and hold compassion for ourselves and others, I wanted to lead by example by sharing my letter with you. My hope is that by listening to my story, it will create an opening for you to consider holding space for the journey you've been on too. In fact, in the last part of this episode, I'll offer you a series of prompts. My hope is that you'll use those questions and your emerging answers as a starting place to write yourself your own letter, or perhaps create your own ritual or practice that allows you to hold space for yourself on the anniversary of your own not-all-better-yet days. Oh, and there's a little bonus at the end. I'm going to read you an excerpt from my book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, An Uncensored Guide to Navigating Loss, coming out this June. It's about the practice of starting close in. Okay, let's begin with our compassion meditation. I want to invite each of you to find a comfortable and kind posture that might be sitting, leaning against something, lying down. You can either close your eyes or just cast your gaze low towards your lap or the ground. Come home to your body and begin to notice the feeling of your feet on the floor your seat on the cushion, your back against the wall, whatever position you've chosen. You might begin to discover any internal sensations that are coming up for you right now. That might be the beating of your heart, a kind of pulsing energy. It might even be aches and pains. Be careful not to get lost in that noticing. Just notice and come back to the sound of my voice. 
Remember that you're not bringing judgmental awareness to your experience, but instead loving and kind awareness. If you lose sight of that, you might periodically through our meditation today adopt a physical gesture that represents a caring attitude, perhaps placing one or both hands over your heart center. You can leave it there or return your hands to your lap. You might notice how your body responds to that physical touch, though, first. The warmth of your hands. Follow your own intuition and leave your hands wherever they feel most of service to you. Now I want you to bring your awareness to your breath. And let's spend some time together taking a few deep inhalations and deep exhalations. They might be the first that you've taken today. Breathing in through your nose, feeling the breath expand your chest, your belly. Exhaling through your mouth, sighing, letting it all out slowly, releasing. A few more rounds on your own big inhalations and big exhalations. And as you arrive at that next deep exhalation, begin to return your breath to the normal rhythm, the breath that you arrived with today. Now remember, your mind will probably wander. It might already have. So when it does, when you've noticed, remember, we're not bringing judgment. Instead, loving, kind awareness. So simply call back your attention to the sensation of your breath with the same quality you might use to usher back a sweet puppy who has wandered off. Gently bringing it back, bringing yourself back to this moment. Just let your awareness rest in your breath, breathing in and out. You might begin to recognize that with each breath, you're nurturing yourself. For now, I want you to pay particular attention to the inhalation and notice that as you breathe in, you're giving yourself exactly what you need in this moment. I want you to Bring to mind any sort of struggle you have in your life in this moment. And on your next inhalation, I want you to breathe in some other quality that you need to soothe your suffering. It might be kindness. It might be love. It might be compassion. So on each in-breath, I want you to imagine bringing that quality into your body. Breathing in this quality with each inhalation. Perhaps there's a word that rests easily on each breath, a word that represents what you need. Or perhaps it's something more general, maybe something like a golden light, a sensation of warmth. You might want to imagine a deep and beautiful hug on each inhalation. Just spend some time here focusing on the inhalation part of your breath cycle. Breathing in love, breathing in warmth, breathing in whatever it is you need most 
to ease your suffering in this moment. And now we will use our breath to send compassion to someone in need by focusing on our out-breath, on our exhalation. So as you focus on your out-breath, I want you to bring to mind someone you know or are aware of in some way who might also be struggling and needs compassion. I'm inviting you to allow their image to arise in your mind's eye and this time around, focusing on your exhalation, on your outbreath, imagine that you are sending them what they need most in this moment. Perhaps it's kindness, or love, or compassion. On each outbreath, you are sending them across the miles, across space and time, that thing which they might need most in this moment to ease their suffering. Again, this may take the form of a word that gently rises on your exhalation. It could be a feeling of warmth. It could be an image. It could be golden light. It could be a hug. With each out-breath, send something good to this other person who's also struggling. A few more rounds, focusing specifically on your exhalation. Offering compassion, love, or light to this other person who is struggling too. And now I want to invite you to balance out your attention, paying attention both to your inhalation and exhalation. And by doing that, we're acknowledging that you as a human being struggles, as does this other person. So breathe in something good for yourself, like compassion and kindness, and breathe out something good for this other person. Warm light, a hug. Breathing in and out. Breathing in, compassion for myself. Exhaling out, compassion for this other person. In for me, out for you. Beginning to recognize that there is no limitation for our ability to deliver compassion both to ourselves and to others. If your mind starts to wander, you can refresh the image of yourself or this other person in your mind's eye. You might once again place your hands over your heart to physically connect you with this sensation of care and compassion. Breathe in the ease of compassion for yourself and out the ease of compassion for this other person. It's also okay to send compassion where it's needed most. So if at any point your attention is drawn more to your own struggle or suffering, feel free to breathe in and focus more on your inhalation part of your breath, bringing in whatever it is you need most in this moment to ease your suffering. 
So you might focus three rounds on the inhalation for you and maybe that fourth round for the other person. Or it might be that the other person is drawing your attention more strongly. So you can for- focus more on the outbreath, sending the compassion they need most in this moment. Or perhaps you just let your breath be an equal, easy flow in and out. In and out. Like the waves of the ocean, breathing in compassion for yourself breathing out compassion for this other person. It is a limitless, boundless ocean. There's enough for me and enough for you. It's an ocean of compassion. With the sensation of limitlessness, let yourself be fully absorbed by the breath of compassion, breathing in and out. Compassion in and out. There's no limits or boundaries. You are capable of holding your own suffering fully and the suffering of this other person. You can ride it like the waves of the ocean, in and out with your breath, in and out with compassion. If other beings come to mind who are suffering or even groups of people from this place of limitless compassion, you can breathe in and out for them as well. Make sure to always include yourself with each in-breath. There's no need to separate the two or sacrifice yourself. Let this ocean hold all suffering and love and compassion. And when you're ready, begin to release your focus on the breath and on that practice of bringing your attention to your breath. And simply bring your awareness back to your body. Back as we began to bringing your awareness perhaps to the sensation of your feet on the floor, seat on the cushion, your back against the wall. Wherever you are, allow yourself to feel whatever it is you're feeling in this moment and to be exactly as you are. Welcome back, my friends. Now that you're reconnected to this truth of our lives, that we're all deserving of compassion and that there are no limits, I wanted to share my ritual letter with you. As you'll hear, what came out of my practice was the discovery that I held a deep well of self-compassion that I'd kept closed off over the past year living with cancer. One year ago, a doctor called me at 5 p.m. on a Friday night to deliver the news no one wants to hear. He was actually the fifth or so doctor I had seen since discovering a lump on my left breast more than a year before. 
the lump that had been dismissed as a twisted milk duct after an ultrasound, and then ignored as nothing in subsequent mammograms was, in fact, he shared, triple positive breast cancer. I spent these past few days staring at a picture of me taken just four days prior to receiving the call, and it makes me weep repeatedly. I don't recognize her. I mean me. I took that selfie because I was so excited to announce that I'd been selected to deliver a TEDx talk. It was something I had dreamed of for years and which thankfully I still managed to do about one month later. That picture was taken two weeks before fulfilling another lifelong dream, submitting my book manuscript to my publisher. I managed to do that too. I look at this picture of me and want to look deeply into her eyes and let her know I'm not afraid of the pain, rage, sorrow, and fear she will feel. I want to tell her that this is fucking bullshit and it sucks so much. I want her to know that she's going to learn, or should I say relearn, the incredible courage it takes to ask for help and the incredible gift it is to receive it. I want to warn her that even though she will have incredible friends show up for her with such generosity and care, the fact that her husband is still dead and not able to accompany her will bring her a new level of grief. I want to caution her that she'll be terrified, experience deep physical, emotional, psychological pain, feel lost and lonely and uncertain that she has the endurance it takes to navigate cancer treatment. I also want her to know that she does, in fact, have that endurance, most days. And on the days that she doesn't have the endurance, she will sleep and wail, cry and rage, and that will be okay too. I look at this woman with the long blonde hair, twinkly green eyes, and glowing face and see what's coming for her, even though she had no clue how brutal the course of treatment would be. She didn't know about the scarring, the burning, the nausea, the infections, or the pain. She didn't know what it would feel like to submerge her feet and hands in ice for hours at a time, or that she would have a severe allergic reaction to the chemotherapy that resulted in her being drugged with Benadryl weekly for 12 weeks. She had no clue what it would feel like to look in the mirror every morning to see half a breast staring back at her, or what it would feel like to have a port catheter protruding from underneath her collarbone and the dilemma that poses for dressing herself. She had no idea how devastating it would feel to lose her hair and have a scalp covered in sores. She didn't realize how alien she would feel without her eyebrows and eyelashes. She had no clue how tied she was to her appearance and that a year later she would still not recognize herself when she passed by a mirror. She didn't know that she would feel so much intense pressure to produce and be positive and optimistic and grateful. She had no clue that some days producing would be the only thing that kept her sane or that on other days, chemo brain would feel so much like grief brain. And on those days, all she could do is stare at the walls in front of her for hours. She didn't know that continuing to record her podcast would be the lifeline she needed because holding space in that way was about the only thing that reminded her that she was still her a deeply curious and compassionate person whose listening skills allow her to live out her purpose of changing the narratives of grief. 
It's been one year since I got the call that I have cancer. I just want to mark it somehow. Though I've rung the chemotherapy bell and the radiation bell, I'm not all better yet. With my clothes on, some of the visible scars of my cancer are slowly fading. Yet I still have four more months of immunotherapy. I take medication daily and will for the next five years, a drug that has its own host of painful side effects. I'm In just a few months, I will have the first of a lifetime of annual scans. And like every other person who's experienced cancer, it will come with unbearable fear. We don't have rituals for illness, and it felt important to acknowledge that what I've been through. I'm just here in this liminal space, and yet this day feels like an important invitation to pause and acknowledge all that's transpired. Here I am. I am here, honoring this version of me, just as I am. Thank you for holding space for me, my friends. I hope you heard in my writing the deep compassion and care I offered myself for all that I've endured. More importantly, I also hope that it inspired you to consider bringing that same level of self-kindness to the version of you that you were in the before and all you've been through until now, until this not-all-better-yet anniversary. I invite you to get out your journal or notes app and write down these questions. Did you forget to grab it? It's okay to pause. I'll be here when you get back. Welcome back. First, I want you to call to mind an image of you in the before, before the life-changing thing happened to you. If you happen to have a photo and want to get that out, you can do that too. Now I want you to look deeply and with care at that version of you and send them that loving, warm light and compassion we just practiced in our meditation. Don't be surprised if this practice brings up tears, sorrow, anger, be with your emotions. If you need to pause this podcast, you can do that. We'll be here waiting for you when you return. Now grab your journal and I want you to write down these six questions. I promise to read them slowly and pause in between, but you can rewind if you need to. The first question or series of questions is this. What words or gestures of care would you want them to receive in the minutes or days or months after experiencing that world-changing moment? If you could look into their eyes, what would you want them to know? Question two, what hard things did they go through that they weren't expecting? And what did that feel like? Question three, what skills or supports or resources 
showed up that were surprisingly helpful? And what did that feel like? Question four to ask, what abilities, capacities, or agency did they access since that time that's helped them? Which one are you most proud of at this moment? What lessons did you learn from them? Question five. What do you want them to know about where you are today on this not all better yet anniversary? That might include both the challenges you still face, yes, and don't forget the joys or triumphs you're celebrating too. And our final question, number six, I want you to use your imagination even more here. What messages of care and kindness do you think they, that version of you, would offer this version of you today if they could? Okay, my friends, I can imagine that just hearing the questions brought up a lot. You might already be overflowing with answers or spilling tears down your face. It's okay. You're okay. I see you and I honor you. Now I want you to take this list of questions and with deep care and self-compassion, begin to answer them. Take your time. Set it down and come back to it if it's too much all at once. You can write your answers in bullet points, freestyle, or even just in your head. Don't edit, just answer. Remember to pause and breathe like we did in our meditation. Place your hand over your heart periodically to check back in with yourself. That gesture of care can be so powerful. Eventually, you may want to turn this into a letter you write to yourself like I did. You may decide not to share it, or perhaps you will. You'll want to share it with a loved one, a friend, maybe even your therapist. Perhaps it won't even be a letter. This is your chance to create a ritual or practice that honors your not-all-better-yet anniversary. Remember, creativity is a powerful resource in grief. So you may decide to turn your answers into a poem or a painting. You may translate all that you're discovering as you answer these questions into an act of service for someone else. It's up to you, my friends. Whatever you decide to do, remember to attend to yourself with compassion and care. Now, before you head off to answer those questions and create your own ritual of honoring your not-all-better-yet day, I thought I'd read you an excerpt from my forthcoming book. It's from the chapter entitled Start Close In. I thought it was appropriate for the topic of today's episode. Start Close In. How do I even start? I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I don't know how to do this. I don't even know where to begin. 
just after my husband died and in more moments than I can count since that first day, I screamed those words to the sky. I said them to a friend while sobbing uncontrollably and silently to myself in bed as tears streamed down my face. And to be honest, the words were filled with a lot more expletives. I'm wondering if you've said or felt something similar. You've already started. I know how much this beginning place feels daunting, overwhelming, terrifying, and even impossible. To be plain, it fucking sucks. Yet here you are. You've already started, even though you didn't want to and likely would have done anything not to be in this beginning spot in the first place. You're reading this book, and that means you've already taken some steps into this new chapter, into this life in the after, after the loss. Whether it's been weeks or months later or sometime further down the road, I hope in some small way that the news you've already begun feels like a bit of a relief. Now you can tell yourself you've already have experience with starting, and that's something. While you're the only person who can walk in your shoes, I've been at the start too, a few times. I've also walked alongside countless people where they started. I'm here to walk alongside you as you begin and offer some guidance along the way. In the darkness. We start in the dark. That's what makes the early season of grief feel so daunting. We're stumbling around in the dark, hands reaching for anything to guide us, feet tentatively stepping to avoid any obstacles that will bring us to our knees. That's where we all start. It seems impossible, but it's from that dark place that we lean on hope. Start close in. To begin simply refers to the first part, the first step, the first action, the first intention. Not the perfect one, not the right one, not the one someone else took, just the first. So each time you begin feeling overwhelmed with what to do next or how you should feel at any given moment in your grief, remember that you don't have to have it all figured out. Instead, I invite you to start close in. As poet and one of my grief guides, David White, reminds us, start close in. Don't take the second step or the third Start with the first thing close in, the step you don't want to take. I found that starting close in can be helpful because it illuminates what you already know. You've lived on this earth for some time now, which means you've already learned some things about beginnings. You've tried, practiced, stumbled, adjusted, and discovered some things that help you when you're in the beginning of something new. Starting close in helps you remember that you have experience and knowledge that can serve you. It gets you in touch with the wisdom and skills you've already developed. It helps you illuminate what you already know. Shifts your gaze. This new terrain of early grief can tempt you to focus on all your energy somewhere far down the road. I call that horizon time. A segment of time so far off that you can't be present. It's like tomorrow, next week, next year, your elder years. Our human need to have a fully fleshed out story means we're often trying to figure out how it will all turn out. The truth is, we just can't know that. By the way, that's true in life, not just in grief. Instead, 
the invitation to start close in is a reminder to cast your gaze at the ground beneath you now. That close-in gaze is crucial to identifying the next best step. Some days feel so filled with your loved one's absence that you find it hard to concentrate on anything else. On those days, remind yourself that your only job in that moment is to breathe. And sometimes that's all you will do. And that will be enough. Starting close in also helps us identify the next best step, not the perfect or right. We're living in an expert-obsessed culture, making us believe there's a perfect or right way to do just about everything, including how to grieve. Think about it. There is a top 10 list for this and a five ways to do X for that. There's a blog, TikTok article on how to be or do everything the best way. This expert culture spills over into how we expect ourselves and others to know how to grieve, quote unquote, well, pressuring us into believing that there's a best possible way. Starting close in helps you recall what you already know. Shift your gaze back to the present moment and ask yourself, what's the next best thing I can do for myself? Not the perfect thing, not the right thing. Newsflash, neither of those things exist. Just the next best thing. At the risk of repeating myself, the answer to that question may include steps that appear as inaction, but can be equally beneficial. They might include things like sleeping, sitting still, crying, yelling, canceling plans, looking through a photo album, or other cherished items, or simply breathing. My friends, I hope that gave you reassurance that you don't have to do this right or well, and that there isn't really such a thing. There's just getting started, and the good news is you already have so much experience in that. If you do this exercise, I'd love to hear what you thought of it. Drop me a note on the Instagram post for this episode or reach out to me by visiting my website at lisakiefover.com. Thank you for listening today, my friends. I hope you found this special episode helpful. If you did, remember to share it with someone you know who might need to honor their not all better yet anniversary too. If you share it on socials, I'd love it if you tagged me at MSW. Oh, and don't forget that my book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, An Uncensored Guide to Navigating Loss, is available for pre-order now on Amazon.com, Bookshop.org, or BarnesandNoble.com. Drop me a note at Lisa Kefauver MSW after you order it so I can say thank you and send you that party invite too. We will be back next week with Asa Merritt, author and creator of the incredible Audible series, Six Sermons. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.